Hello, and welcome to Shakes Pod, Silicon Valley Shakespeare's podcast. I'm Angie Higgins, Silicon Valley Shakespeare's Artistic Director. This year is our 25th anniversary season, and we are kicking it into full gear to celebrate our past, present, and future. In fact, our free Shakespeare in the park this year is specifically celebrating our past as we produce Twelfth Night, which was SVS's first production ever back in 1999 when we were known as Shady Shakespeare. And it was also our very first Shakespeare in the Park at Willow Street Park in San Jose in 2013. As many of you know, we are blessed to have an amazing dramaturg on staff, Miss Dahl Picado, and today she's back to kick off our Shakespeare series for this season with a bard talk on Twelfth Night. Take it away, Dahl. My name is Dahl Picado, and this is Bard Talk. If you're looking for fun, look no further. This season's hottest play is Twelfth Night. This play has it all. Storms, twins, shipwrecks, Antonios, and lots and lots of rhymed mupplets. I'm, I'm sorry, what is a rhymed mupplet? It's that thing where you end a speech with a rhyme, but to emphasize the rhyme, you say it like Miss Piggy. Does it make me a Shakespeare nerd if I force my husband to betray Stefan from Saturday Night Live to introduce Twelfth Night to you? Let's see. Twelfth Night, or what you will, was written in 1601 or thereabouts, sandwiched right between Hamlet and Troilus and Cressida, And it's no wonder he took a break between those two downers with this play, one of his funniest and most popular comedies. It tells the story of identical twins, Viola and Sebastian, who in their travels are separated by a shipwreck and each believe the other to be dead. Viola washes up on the shore of Illyria and dresses as a boy to serve in the house of Duke Orsino. Orsino dispatches Viola, now named Cesario, to woo the fair Olivia for him, All other servants have been unsuccessful as Olivia is in deep mourning. Viola as Cesario, however, is able to gain access to the lady, albeit reluctantly as Viola herself has fallen in love with Orsino. Olivia, upon seeing Viola dressed as Cesario, falls in love with the servant and sends her steward Malvolio, a strict Puritan, to chase after the boy. In the meantime, Malvolio, believing himself morally better than the other members of the household, keeps breaking up the revels of Sir Toby, Olivia's uncle, and his band of cronies, Sir Andrew Aguecheek, Mariah, Festy the Fool, and Fabian. In revenge, they plant a letter which leads Malvolio to believe that Olivia is in love with him and desires him to appear to her in yellow stockings, a direct contrast to his usual austere Puritan garb. He obeys, and Olivia, thinking him insane, has him confined to a dark room. In the meantime, Sebastian, who has not died at sea, shows up in Illyria as well, and the mistaken identity hilarity ensues. At the end, as Puck would say, Jack shall have Jill, not shall go ill, the man shall have his merrigan, and all shall be well. 
everyone ends up with the right person and they live happily ever after, right? Well, it would be wrong to assume just because it's a light comedy that it doesn't have any problems or discussion points. It is Shakespeare, after all. Let's take a look at a few of those points today. First, the title. Second, the twins. And third, the punishment of Malvolio. For those of you who have read the play before, you've probably wondered or looked up what Twelfth Night actually is. Twelfth Night is January 5th or 6th, depending on who you ask, also known as the Twelfth Day of Christmas, the Feast of Epiphany, Dia de los Reyes, Three Kings Day, or the End of Yule. However, in the play itself, when confronted with Malvolio dressed in yellow stockings, Olivia cries out, why, this is very Midsummer Madness. Now, if we look up the definition of Midsummer Madness, we find, quote, a temporary lapse into foolishness, senseless behavior or folly, etc., especially during the summer. And if we look at the origin date of this phrase, we get 1595 to 1605, right when this play was written. So, Chances are this phrase was actually coined by Shakespeare in this play, and this leaves many people to believe the play takes place in June when the summer solstice takes place. Why, then, is the play called Twelfth Night? Well, there are a couple of different theories. First, Twelfth Night celebrations were real parties. They were a cause for masks, dances, revels, feasting, drinking, and plays. They were real ragers. Puritans like Malvolio hated Twelfth Night. So many think that because this play contains a lot of those Twelfth Night party elements, including mocking Puritans, the play title reflects those party ideas. Others believe that Queen Elizabeth I commissioned the play for the court's Twelfth Night revels to honor the end of the embassy of the Italian Duke of Orsino, and that Shakespeare provided this play for her, and the title marked the occasion rather than the play itself. The play's alternate title, What You Will, goes along a little better with Shakespeare's similar titles of As You Like It, Much Ado About Nothing, and All's Well That Ends Well. There's no recorded evidence that Shakespeare wrote this play for Queen Elizabeth I, but the first recorded performance was for a group of lawyers at the ends of court on February 2nd, so not long after Twelfth Night. So are either of these theories correct? Short answer, uh, maybe? Second subject, the twins. Twelfth Night is unique in that the play starts with a scientific impossibility. When Viola and Sebastian encounter each other at the end of the play, Antonio says, an apple cleft in twain is no more twin than these two creatures, which is Sebastian indicating that the twins are identical. However, as they are different biological sexes, this is scientifically impossible. Twins of differing biological sexes are fraternal twins, not identical twins. Wouldn't Shakespeare, the father of fraternal twins, Hamnet and Judith, know this? Short answer, nope. In early modern England, twins were twins. Science didn't catch on to different types of twins until 1900 or 1905. Shakespeare and his society had barely just gotten past the idea that twins were magical. 
Shakespeare clearly found their potential for comedy much more interesting than their scientific interest, having twins in multiple comedies. Comedy of Errors, in fact, doubles the comedy with two sets of twins. Third subject, the punishment of Malvolio. Okay, Toby, Mariah, and Fabian have convinced Olivia that Malvolio is insane. She gives them care of him, and they capture him, tie him up, and put him in a dark room. They then send the fool to torment him. After having their fun, their scheme is revealed. Malvolio complains of his treatment to Olivia. Fabian defends Sir Toby's group by telling Olivia that Malvolio started it because he was mean to them. Sorry, not sorry. And the whole thing kind of ends with Malvolio stomping off, swearing revenge in a snit, and then we close with a happy ending and a song. So how are we supposed to react to this? Are we supposed to sympathize with Malvolio? We've spent the entire play laughing at the antics of Sir Toby, Andrew, Maria, Fabian, and Festy. Are we supposed to hate them now? Are we supposed to think Malvolio deserved what he got? Short answer, uh, maybe? Did Shakespeare's audience think Malvolio deserved what he got? Short answer, uh, maybe, but probably yes. The Puritans were a religious sect that arose within the Church of England in the late 16th century. They believed the separation that the Church of England had done from the Roman Catholic Church was not enough. They believed all ceremonies and practices not rooted in the Bible should be eliminated. They advocated plain dress and condemned anything they believed distracted people from God and led them into moral iniquity. This included masks, dances, revels, feasting, drinking, and plays. So, all the Twelfth Night things. Theater during the early modern period was not just a place to enjoy a nice matinee. Oh, no. The theater was basically, and often literally, the gateway to all sorts of Puritan no-nos. Gambling, thievery, bear baiting, sex work, disease. These were all associated with the theater. In fact, the stately Globe Theater, a symbol of such high theatrical esteem today, was literally a stone's throw from Holland's Leaguer, a brothel run by businesswoman Elizabeth Holland. Actors and theater workers themselves were considered nearly one and the same as sex workers, as both careers were built on deception. Acting, pretending to be something you are not, was tantamount with lying, and both careers relied heavily on theatrics in their trade. So yes, Shakespeare, the greatest playwright of all time, bastion of English literature, studied in nearly every school across the globe, was thought by many to be on the same moral level as prostitutes in his day, especially by Puritans. Shakespeare and his troupe, as tried-and-true theater guys, would understandably be angry that a bunch of cowl-wearing squares were trying to rain on their good time, not to mention their livelihood. It would make sense for Shakespeare to roast the Puritans in this play through the character of Malvolio. 
But as in many of Shakespeare's plays, Shakespeare gives his characters language and nuance that could suggest the opposite. When Malvolio sends a letter from his dark room to Olivia, it says, By the Lord, madam, you wrong me and the world shall know it. Though you have put me into darkness and given your drunken cousin rule over me, yet have I the benefit of my senses as well as your ladyship. I have your own letter that induced me to the semblance I put on, with the which I doubt not but to do myself much right or you much shame. Think of me as you please. I leave my duty a little unthought of and speak out of my injury. The madly used Malvolio. In this letter, Malvolio is coherent, fervent, but most importantly, still deferential to his lady. He has been tortured in a most cruel way and believes it to have come from her, but he still excuses himself for speaking so bluntly as he is speaking out of his injury rather than his duty to his lady. Even Orsino, when hearing it, says this savors not much of distraction. Olivia tells us he has been most notoriously abused. So how are we supposed to feel about him? Another example. In Much Ado About Nothing, we are presented with Claudio, who is duped into believing that he has witnessed his fiancé hero being unfaithful to him the night before their wedding. So, naturally, he goes to her and talks to her about what he saw to clear up any misunderstandings, right? Short answer, no. No, of course he doesn't. This is Shakespeare. He comes to the wedding all dressed up, waits until the I do's, disgraces his bride in front of everybody, throws her on the ground, and storms out, leaving her to die. Yay, patriarchy! However, once the plot is found out and he knows that Hero is actually innocent, he repents. He's really sorry. He pays his respects at her graves. He's really, really sorry. He agrees to marry another girl who apparently looks just like Hero. Spoiler alert, it's Hero. So he gets his happy ending. And he's really, really, really sorry. Now, are we supposed to just accept this? Are we supposed to be happy for Claudio and Hero? Are we supposed to believe he's being rewarded after his terrible behavior? Is Hero happy? Are we supposed to believe after all they've been through that they are going to have a successful marriage full of love and satisfaction? Short answer, uh, maybe? Maybe these play endings are meant to be more than just desserts or a happy ending. Maybe we're meant to feel more than yay or boo. Maybe these are supposed to be more like real life. Messy, unpredictable, and full of feelings we sometimes don't always understand right away, but have to think about and work out for ourselves. Sometimes the most effective plays aren't the ones you fall in love with immediately, but the ones that keep you thinking and talking and commenting on Reddit for days, months, or years afterwards. Or in Shakespeare's case, centuries. Except for Reddit, of course. Maybe the reason 
we all keep coming back to these same plays is that we are still thinking about them. We are still working them out. And as times move on and things change and different issues arise, we find we are still talking about Shakespeare's plays and thinking about them in new ways and different ways that relate to our new and different times. And frankly, I can't think of anything more exciting than that. Does that make me a Shakespeare nerd? Uh, maybe. Thank you for coming to my Bard Talk. Thank you, Doll, for that thought-provoking bard talk. If you're itching for some live entertainment, Shakespeareans, the popular A Pub, A Pint, and A Play series of free Shakespeare staged readings is back and ready to hit the outdoor stage. So mark your calendars for Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare on Monday, February 13th at 6.30 p.m. on the San Pedro Square Market patio stage. Admission is free, but donations are graciously accepted. In collaboration with our friends at Buck Hill Productions, our talented actors will unpack the language of Romeo and Juliet in a playful, unique, and accessible way in an easygoing and entertaining environment while you drink, eat, and generally have a good time. SVS will be presenting this iconic romance with a gender-reversed cast to explore the Bard's iconic tale about star-crossed lovers in a truly innovative way. Whether you come for the whole staged reading or just stay for one scene, the Shakespeareance you have is up to you. Join us next month on ShakesPod for a behind-the-scenes interview with host Tanya Mara and the Twelfth Night co-directors, Yvette Del Toro and Aaron Southard, as they chat about their telenovela concept that highlights the rom-com aspects of the Bard's classic tale. And now, because no episode is complete without one, I'll hand it back to our resident dramaturg, Dal Picado, for this episode's Bard Babble. As Hamlet says in Act 2, Scene 2, words, words, words. This episode's Bard Babble is zany. Rather than being the descriptive word we are more associated with, someone being or acting zany, Shakespeare actually created this word to be used as a noun. A zany is a fool or clown, especially one whose business on the stage is to imitate foolishly the actions of the principal clown, kind of like a theatrical hype man. Shakespeare actually borrowed this term from Italian comedies. A zani, Z-A-N-N-I, is a dialectical shortening of the name Gianni, or John, which was the stock name for many clowns on the Italian stage. Shakespeare's version of the word first appears in Love's Labor's Lost, but for our Twelfth Night purposes, it is especially memorable when Malvolio gives his entitled opinion on the uselessness of foolery. I marvel your ladyship takes delight in such a barren rascal. I saw him put down the other day with an ordinary fool that has no more brain than a stone. Oh, look you now, he's out of his guard already. Unless you laugh and minister occasion to him, he is gagged. I protest I take these wise men that crow so at these set kind of fools no better than the fool's zanies. Shakespeare invented over 400 words. This has been one of them. From SVS to all of our wonderful listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Shakespeare.